0: Hi guys, I'm Cassie. Welcome to Crime and Cassie and All Things Creepy. If you're new here, every week I talk to you guys about a case that, for whatever reason, has shaken me to my core. I plan on doing some spooky episodes here and there in the near future, but for now, Just trying to build up some true crime for you guys in case you want to binge it out. If that sounds like your jam, I highly suggest you subscribe wherever you are watching or listening. I'm on YouTube and anywhere you listen to podcasts and you know, like, share, comment, review if you feel so inclined. Speaking of YouTube, I got so much love for the Martha Moxley episode last week. It made my day, my week, my life. A lot of Taylor Swift jokes. You guys had me dying. I used to get that all the time when she was younger and her hair was curly and she ages like a fine wine. And so like the prettier she gets, the less people say I look like her. So, you know, I look like the old awkward Taylor Swift, but I'll take it. So thank you. And seriously, I appreciate you guys so much. The support is unreal. So truly, truly, thank you. Another thing somebody mentioned is that some of the transition sounds are too loud. So I've chosen quieter ones today. Look, I'm the most technologically challenged person there is. The fact that I'm editing videos at all is a miracle. I get all excited and I'm like, ooh, sound effects, pew, 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 pew. So I came in a little hot, I'll admit it. I also edit at a pretty low volume because listening to your own voice over and over again is a form of torture. Oh, and one more thing, someone said that I sound like I'm in a tunnel and I hear ya, I have a microphone, it had great reviews, but it's not my favorite. The more you guys support this and share it, the quicker I can update my janky equipment and soundproof this bitch. Today, we're gonna to be talking about an unsolved murder of a 14-year-old girl. Her parents immigrated to the US to give her and her sister a better life. And in an instant, that was gone. This is the murder of Jenny Lynn. So last week, we traveled back to the 70s. Today, we're gonna to go back to the decade of all decades My personal favorite, the 90s. John Lynn and his wife May Lynn moved to the United States in 1973 from Taiwan to attend graduate school. They get married in 1974 and they decide we're gonna stay in America, we're gonna raise a family here to give them better opportunities. So they settle in the town of Castro Valley, California, which is in the Bay Area. It's a very nice neighborhood and eventually they have two daughters, Rhoda, and then Jenny. Jennifer Han Chi Lin was born May twenty fifth, 1980. In May of 1994, Jenny turns 14. I'm always jealous of people that got to be teenagers in the 90s. It seemed like the most fun, although I got to be a kid in the 90s and it was the best. Jenny's described as being vibrant, vivacious, and overall easygoing. She was in her final year of Canyon Middle School, so she's getting really excited for high school and she was no achiever to say the least. She was likely gonna be the valedictorian at her middle school when she graduated in a few weeks. Not only was she a talented dancer and pianist, but she was an incredibly gifted violist. Do I mean violinist? No, I mean violist. If I'm even saying it right, violist? Violist. I don't know, let me know. How is a viola different than a violin? You might be asking. A viola is larger, The top string on a violin is an E, but the bottom string on a viola is the A, five notes below that. The overall pitch of a viola will generally sound lower and a bit more mellow than a violin. Either way, impressive. And just to further rub it in your face about how amazing she was, she had become the principal violist in her school orchestra and the youngest member of the Castro Valley Orchestra. On top of all that, she was a straight-A student, she was semi-boy crazy, but at 14, who wasn't? She loved clothes, and her family said that her trademark outfit was a white sweatshirt and a pair of flower-printed shorts. She had a trademark outfit. How adorable. My trademark outfit is full Adam Sandler. She was a type A girl, and it said that she would drive her friends nuts because she would go over to their house and start cleaning their room. They're like, Jenny, relax. Take a load off. This was the 90s after all, so take a big guess on what she wanted to be when she grew up. Like many of us, a marine biologist. I blame Lisa Frank. And if you think that was just a pipe dream like you and I had, think again. She had concrete plans to attend UC Berkeley's academic talent development program. She also attended Chinese school on Saturdays because it was important for her to stay in touch with her heritage. Her older sister Rhoda is off at college in Santa Cruz, so Jenny and her two parents are like three little peas in a pod. On May 27, 1994, Jenny had just celebrated her 14th birthday two days prior, and today is just like any other day except it's a Friday, and it's Memorial Day weekend. Her dad, John, drops her off at school before he heads to the Rapid Transit or BART station train where he would park his car and take the train to work at the Federal Reserve Bank, about 30 minutes away. Jenny takes the bus home and she gets home that day around (laughs) 2.45. After getting home, she talks to a friend on the phone for about an hour and around 4.45, she calls another friend and stays on the phone with them till about quarter after 5, 5.30. At some point her dad tries calling her from work but he doesn't get an answer i'm not sure what time he called her and i think it's definitely possible that she was on the phone with one of her friends or busy doing chores or busy tending to their dog john gets home at about 6:45, and he expects to see jenny he sees that the tv is on and there's an uneaten microwave dinner on the dining room table he yells for jenny and he hears nothing so he's thinking what the hell where is she He goes and he opens the sliding glass door and he notices that it's unlocked, which is unusual. His wife, May, was a freak about having all of the doors and windows locked. It was actually part of her morning routine. She would go around and check to make sure everything was locked. We should all be like May. So because it's unlocked, he's like, okay, she must be outside playing with the dog. So he goes outside and he sees the dog and the dog only. Panic is starting to set in a little bit, so he goes upstairs and he notices that the ensuite bathroom door is shut. And that's weird because it's always open and Jenny never uses it. So Jenny's not in there, he knows that. He opens the door and to his horror, he sees his 14 year old daughter lying face down in a pool of blood. She was completely nude. Her clothes had been cut off her and her arms and legs were bound with duct tape. He rolls her over to save her and he notices that she's just covered in stab wounds. He calls 911 begging them for help, but she's already gone. He calls his wife, May, and I can't imagine making or receiving that phone call. This, again, is a Friday on Memorial Day weekend. I'm sure they were all excited, and just like that, their American dream is shattered. Police arrive, and almost immediately, it's a massive crime scene. I mean obviously this is a 14 year old girl. This is a nice neighborhood. They find footprints all over the deck and they determine that they were most likely gorilla brand work boots or something similar. Unfortunately all of the prints were only partials so they can't get the exact shoe size but they think it ranged from a men's size 9 through 11. They noticed that the window on the side of the house where the dining room was had been smashed. It was on this little area called a dog run which is basically like a little fenced in small area to let your dog out they can tell that somebody had tried to pry open the balcony door like they had steps going up to the balcony and they went up there they tried to pry that open that didn't work and the suspect is realizing okay all of these windows are locked i have to break a window so he goes to the side of the house and smashes that dining room window It seems like the suspect actually tried to clean up those shards of glass and then had to squeeze through a pretty small hole. What the detectives are thinking is this, the suspect watched the home, learned the family's daily habits, and broke in before Jenny got home. That he squeezed through the tiny opening of the broken window and even tried to clean up the shards of glass so that Jenny wouldn't suspect that anyone had broken in, and then that he went upstairs and he hid and at the right time, he made noise to lure Jenny upstairs, hence the uneaten microwave dinner. I think he tells Jenny to get undressed and plans to sexually assault her, but then something scares him off. She wasn't sexually assaulted. I don't know if I said that or not. And then he just leaves through that sliding glass door, which if you remember, John discovered it unlocked, which was unusual. Investigators start talking to all the neighbors and a man saw another man cutting through the baseball field behind the Lynn's home. He had a blue duffel bag with red straps and he had like a hood up or a hat on. It kind of seemed like he was trying to conceal his face and was purposely avoiding eye contact. And this is confirmed because bloodhounds had traced a man's scent to that baseball field behind the Lynn's home. Another tip said that there had been a suspicious man on a motorcycle. Another neighbor said there was a suspicious man going door to door. And finally, someone said that they heard a dog barking loudly around 3 p.m. But I mean, Jenny got home before three. She got home at 2.45 and she had been on the phone with two different people in the hours after that. So I don't know about the dog tip. Police are also interviewing the family and they confirm that mom and dad were both at work. They confirm that Jenny's sister Rhoda, she was up in Santa Cruz, she was with her boyfriend. But John brings up something strange that happened not too long before the murder. On May 12th, so just a few weeks before Jenny's murder, John was leaving the BART station. He had just gotten off of work and he was walking to his car. He's approached by a man who says I have your daughter and John's like what the hell and jumps in his car and the guy comes up to his window and he's like motioning to roll down your window and John's like freaked out so he just takes off and John's like shit I should have gotten a better look at this guy so he turns around and he goes back and tries to find this guy but he's nowhere to be found. Just in case he goes to Jenny's practice just to make sure that she's safe and she is and then he calls Rhoda to make sure she's safe and she is so he kind of brushes it off as this guy was mentally ill and nothing to worry about. After Jenny's murder this is too suspicious not to look into it. John describes the man as having a dark complexion, about 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10 and about 35 to 40 years old. Police actually have John work with a sketch artist. But John doesn't think the sketch looks close enough to the man that he saw. So he actually hires his own sketch artist to come up with a new one. And John and May give that to the media. And that's kind of the one that circulates. Unfortunately, nothing ever comes of that. And to this day, nobody knows who that man was. Police ask the FBI to step in and they do. And one of the first things they do is they determine the exact brand of duct tape. They also consult with an FBI profiler and they come up with this profile. The person or persons are familiar with the neighborhood and could have been legitimate reasons as to why they were there, so they might not have stuck out. They were a loner and could possibly live with others but definitely prefer to be alone. They wouldn't stand out at all but have overall normal social skills. Alcohol abuse is probable. They wouldn't appear strange, threatening, or weird. Following the murder, they would have indicated concern or worry over Jenny, and it's possible that they left afterwards, and if they had any connections to the neighborhood, would have returned. In September of 1994, police do another, but this time super thorough, canvas of the neighborhood. They actually send out a detailed questionnaire. One neighbor who's part of the local neighborhood crime watch had talked to another neighbor who had been outside watering her rose bushes. Police end up talking to this woman, and she's hesitant at first. She doesn't speak a whole lot of English, and she's kind of fearful for her life. She doesn't want anything to come back to her if she says anything, but she did say that she saw a man in a dark jacket walking back and forth in front of the Lynn's house, but then her son later said, it's hard to tell what she saw because she wasn't wearing her glasses. Pretty soon another suspect comes into play. We don't know his name, so I'm going to call him suspect number one. Suspect number one was 22 years old. He lived with his parents. His dad actually owned a surgical instrument sharpening business. Nobody knows who gave this tip about this man, but they do know that His parents were out of town that weekend. He says that he was home all day, and then he picked up his girlfriend from work, and then came back to his house, and they hung out together. He didn't even hear about Jenny's murder until days after. But his girlfriend says that she didn't get off until 8 p.m., so he had all that time to possibly commit the murder. He ends up moving out of his parents' house within a few weeks after the murder. He moves in with a friend and then comes back shortly after. If you remember, the FBI profiler said that it's possible that someone would do that. They would leave right after the murder and then come back soon after. Police try to talk to his parents, but they were away from Memorial Day weekend. They can't really help out at all. They talked to the man again, and he now says he was at work at a car wash until 6 p.m. and then picked his girlfriend up at 8 p.m., but the car wash says he didn't work that day. So they ask him, you take a polygraph?" and at first he's hesitant but eventually agrees. They have him tear some duct tape to see if it matches the way that the duct tape was torn in Jenny's murder, but they conclude that it wasn't similar. He then changes his mind again about the polygraph and says, no, I'd rather talk to a lawyer first. So apparently he talks to his lawyer. So in February of 1996, he finally takes that polygraph and he fails it, so they search his car, but it shows up no evidence. In February of 1997, police receive a tip that a man had been impersonating a detective trying to use a badge to get info on certain people. They find this guy, they search his vehicle, and in his trunk, they find the exact brand of duct tape used to bind Jenny. They send the duct tape off to get tested, and they find out that this man lives in the same neighborhood as Jenny, and had the same exact home as hers, but in reverse. So he would have known the exact layout of her house. His daughter went to school with Jenny and he had actually driven Jenny to school before. He said that he remembered the day that Jenny had been murdered because he and his family had heard sirens and they actually stepped outside and saw the huge police presence in front of the Lynn's home. Police have him take a voice stress test, but they're basically only 50% effective. I mean, look at polygraphs, they're only about 70 to 90% effective. The duct tape analysis comes back and they determine that it's not a match for the same brand, but the tear is very similar. They also test his car fibers, but they don't match any of the evidence from Jenny's murder. They find a badge in his car that he was using to impersonate an officer. And they find out that he had actually used to be a deputy, but they find no proof that he still used the badge. So nothing ever comes of it. Now we're going to talk about Sebastian Alexander Shaw. I'm not going to say all of that so let's just call him Shaw. I don't know if it was the police or the FBI who got the tip but nonetheless they get a tip that 600 miles north in Oregon police find a man sleeping in a stolen vehicle from San Ramon, California. Police search the vehicle and they find books about satanic doings, books about first aid, body chemistry, pornographic material, two blue ski masks, flex cuffs, combat boots, handcuffs, a knife, a claw hammer, binoculars, a blue bag, and duct tape. Immediately, they're suspicious of this guy, so they test the tape. The tape ends up not being a match, but they do determine that Shaw actually worked in California From April to at least May of 94. In 1998 Shaw was arrested for the sexual assault of a 22 year old woman at gunpoint. They apparently found him through DNA and that same DNA linked him to a 1992 double murder in Portland of 18 year old Donna Ferguson and 29 year old Todd Rudiger. They were both stabbed and bound with cords and Donna had been sexually assaulted. Then they connect him to the nineteen ninety-one murder of forty-year-old Jay Rickbale. He ends up getting sentenced to three life terms plus thirty years and police want to talk to him about Jenny's murder. Now he denies having anything to do with it, but they're like, We're gonna search your car anyway. And in 2000, they test items found in his car, but nothing connects it to Jenny. Detectives aren't really letting up. So they continue to question Shaw time after time. And he ends up admitting to them that, okay, yeah, I killed 10 people, but he completely denies having anything to do with Jenny's murder. And his lawyer denies this as well. But in 2006, police publicly name him as a suspect in Jenny's murder. Because of this, he's pissed and stops talking to detectives altogether because it's not gonna go over well with other prisoners if they think that he killed a 14-year-old girl. You know how prison is. Jenny's dad, John, writes Shaw a letter in 2008, basically telling him, I think that you killed my daughter. Why can't you admit it? Why did you kill her? What happened to make you choose her? And Shaw kind of responds basically saying, I don't even think that this is Jenny's dad saying this. This is just the police trying to get me to confess and I didn't kill your daughter. And they basically have some back and forth with John being firm in his belief that Shaw killed Jenny. And with Shaw saying, no, I didn't do it. I'm sorry about what happened to her, but dude, it wasn't me. Shaw tells John to come have a meeting with me. We can talk face to face, but John obviously refuses. You don't want to sit across from somebody that you think may have murdered your daughter. After that final letter from John, Shaw never ends up responding and ends their correspondence. In 2015, detectives try one more time to get Shaw to confess to Jenny's murder but he denies it. He still takes credit for killing 10 plus people but says, I did not kill Jenny. Shaw ends up dying in October of 2021 in the Oregon State Penitentiary. The family kind of always believed that Shaw did it and they were always holding out hope that he would confess and you know, be convicted for Jenny's murder and now that was all out the window. But in June of 2022, police ruled Shaw out as a suspect. Detectives do have foreign DNA from the murder scene. It was actually tested as late as this year, 2022, but I'm assuming nothing came of it and I'm assuming it didn't match Shaw because they all of a sudden ruled him out as a suspect, right? They do know one thing. This was very planned and very controlled. The detective said, quote, We have a couple of possibilities that we are holding close to our vest. We want to make sure that we don't disclose too much to a potential suspect. They also referenced that they want to preserve evidence because things are always changing and evolving and you don't want to use up all that DNA. The Lins previously had a reward of $100,000 for any info that would lead to the arrest and conviction of Jenny's killer. It has now doubled to a whopping $200,000. So if you know something, now's the time to speak up. The Lynns didn't let their daughter die in vain. Every year, they hold a vigil for her in Castro Valley, and they even started a foundation in her honor called the Jenny Lynn Foundation. The foundation's mission statement is to promote child safety and youth music education. The foundation sponsors many music and safety events, which benefit the East Bay communities, including the free youth music camp and concert, scholarships for young musicians, and safety awareness education and more. I'll make sure I link that for you guys, so definitely go check it out. Let's just hope and pray that somehow the Lins can get justice for Jenny. I know it's possible. As always, if you have any information about this case, please call the Alameda County Sheriff's Office at 510-667-3622 or the FBI San Francisco Division at 415-553-7400. You may also contact your local FBI office or the nearest American embassy or consulate. Public tips can remain confidential. Thank you guys for tuning in again. This was Crime and Cassie. Don't forget to subscribe and share. And remember to stay safe out there, lock your doors, wear your SPF, and if you hear a noise upstairs, grab the nearest weapon and aim for the balls. Or just run outside.